we're back with another edition of Checked Out. It's Jenny. And this is Alexa. And this month we are talking sci-fi. Um, so I have to admit, sci-fi is not a genre that I read very much of, so this was actually a really fun month for me. Um, and just really quick, um, we'll introduce the other people in the room with us today. Mm -hmm. We've got, uh, once again, Brian's back with us. Hello, everyone. And Scott, another Northside staff member. Hello. Um, both Brian and Scott are... I would consider you guys more avid sci-fi readers. Scott certainly is, but Brian you definitely are um, more right. than I am. Um, so what more than you, but not as much as Scott. I right, think. maybe you're the happy medium. <laughs> uh, so what separates sci-fi from fantasy? Is I'm, there is there like a strict definition? Well, or is it kind of a blending. This is what? actually something that's a perennial debate, and I think it's even come up more recently in recent years. What emphasis on technology do you need to be sci-fi? Can the technology be treated as magic or incomprehensible and still be considered fantasy? There's a lot of times a kind of false dichotomy between science fiction and science fantasy. Uh, the easiest way to describe that would be science fiction would be Star Trek and science fantasy would be Star Wars. That's exactly what I was thinking yeah, of Star Wars. There, there is yeah, more of an emphasis on the fantastical and mythic elements in the latter. Uh, so it, it really just depends. Um, I think historically there's been a lot of overlap because there was a lot of overlap in the pulp magazines and even the uh, authors, um, it being a more escapist, almost working class set of genres. And you're talking about like pulp magazines, like the 50s when it kind of... Yeah, 50s or even the, the 20s and 30s. And 30s yeah. Yeah. yeah, so uh, so yeah, it, it really depends. I, I would say science fiction usually examine man's relationship to technology in a more direct form than other sorts of literary genres do. Um, the way I see it, it just it kind of just trims all the fat away and says, all right, this is the theme we're talking about. We're doing it very directly. Right. We're not using metaphors. We're going to talk about robots. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting because as previous listeners of the podcast will know, I don't do sad books. Uh, and it felt like there was a lot of sad mm. in science fiction that I kind of had to I had to sort through to find one. I ended up reading a children's book is what I ended up doing. <laughs> but to find one that wasn't... That You're wasn't not even safe there a lot of the times. I know! <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to go ahead and dive in and talk about some of our recommendations. And it's not, as always, it's not just books. It's also uh, movies or TV shows or things that from the genre that we really enjoy. So um, I think we should probably start with the expert here and go with Scott. Okay. Um, and you dive in and tell us what, what your picks are. So uh, the book I read is The Drowned World by J.G. Ballard, which is a 1962 novel. It was originally published in a magazine in novella form, and this is an expansion of that. It is kind of one of the uh, progenitors, the urtext, kind of the original climate fiction novels. Um and uh, it's also one of the earlier post-apocalyptic novels. So the setting of this, it is, and what you find out is London, uh, in the year 2145. It's about 70 years after our atmosphere has been wrecked by just very intense solar storms. Uh, so the equator is about 180 degrees. Um, most of uh, society has moved toward the poles. The drop population has dropped significantly. Uh, evolution has ag aggressively uh, started up and to the point where there's giant iguanas. And it's almost kind of your Jurassic Parky. Like, there's just giant iguanas and caiman alligators and stuff in these, like, canals in London uh, that they're having to deal with. Marmosets and uh, ferns and 
different types of trees everywhere. No, it's it's incredibly swampy, incredibly humid, and he makes you feel that in every page. Even to the point where I I would say the structure of his sentences are very jungle-like. You know, it it gets you, even reading it, you feel like you're staring into this lurid, bright, hot, uh, beaconed, uh, sun. So it's almost like the weather is, is another character. The weather is totally a character. I would say it's the biggest character of the novel. Um, and it's a pretty short novel. It's about 160 pages. Um, so I don't know how much of it I can talk about without giving it away because of that. Um, so the main character is Karen's. That's K-E-R-A-N-S, not Karen. Um, he's a man. He's a scientist, as it happens. Uh, and there he... Uh, studies the climate and flora and fauna of this area for the government, which all that we see is militarized. That seems to be about what's left. Um, At the beginning of the novel, a lot of the other people, military personnel at the station, are going to go up north to a place called Camp Bird, and he and his former love interest, Beatrice, as well with another uh, uh, doctor, Dr. Bodkin, are uh, discuss or they're basically wanting to stay behind, but they don't know if they'll ever actually go to Camp Bird to go to it because what it is, and I can I can talk about Ballard's influences later, uh, but there is they as their um, environment becomes more and more Triassic, they basically become more and more primal in the sense that their subconsciouses, subconsciouses, it is yeah, are calling them to kind of return to the nature, they're having these vivid dreams. Um, They're like subconsciously almost self-sabotaging themselves in a way uh, in this sense to return to this more primal state and like gain a greater equilibrium of their environment. It's fascinating. And it sort of fits with it being the 60s and the whole like back to nature. Well, it, it is. Kind of movement. It's early 60s. And reading this, I, I it's definitely psychedelic, even though it was before mid and late that 60s when that really hit. But Ballard actually studied medicine at Cambridge, I believe, for a while to be a psychiatrist. So um, he definitely has a background to sure. write this sort of thing. And uh, he decided to write science fiction novels instead. But that clearly comes in, as well as he was friends with a lot of painters, he was adjacent to the pop art movement, and he was very into surrealism, which definitely shows its influence on this novel. Cool. All right, Brian, what do you got for us? Uh, well, my pick is uh, goes kind of hand-in-hand with, uh, with Scott's. I, I picked Canical for Leibowitz. Now, Canical for Leibowitz w- was a... Uh, 1959 novel. It also was a what was a novel that was put together out of multiple short stories. Um, the author Walter Miller. This is his only novel, and uh, it's it's sort of considered one of those all-time sci-fi classics. It was very. It was it was huge at the time. It's remains huge. It's it's just it's just a classic that people people go back to over and over. Um, and the, the, the crux of this book is that it, it takes place in the future, it, it, actually multiple points in the future, yeah. um, but it takes place in the future after there's been some kind of a, of a nuclear Armageddon, and the central action is, is set in Utah, and you have a, an order of, of Catholic, and, um, Catholic uh, monks a monastic order called uh, it's the the Leibowitz order. They uh, and they they all follow after this uh, this deceased 
uh, monk, Leibowitz, who had been around um, right at the time of, of the big war. And uh, so one of the conceits of the book is that after, their, after the, <laughs> the, the nuclear war that wiped everything out, the, the public got very angry at their leadership. And, uh, As one would do. Yeah, and started, start, started basically uh, wipe, wiping them out. And uh, the idea at the time, the, the smarties who, who had built all these, all, this, all these great weapons and had, had put their uh, society together in this fashion uh, were, were enraged that simpletons were, were, were running the show. And the the uh, the common folk actually took that that name up as uh, being a simpleton was something that they were proud of, and they put together simple towns, and they and they and they rejected uh, they rejected smarty pants stuff, they rejected uh, literacy basically, mm. and so the Leibowitz order is 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 an order that is. Uh, uh, and this is one of the, the those interesting conceits of sci-fi, and it's it's futuristic, but in that everything's been nuked to to ash, and that they're basically rebuilding it. it it's it's set. It, it could almost be name of the rose in terms of taking place in a monastery where 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 these where these guys are are are, are uh, illuminating. These monks are are trying to preserve the uh, the writings from before the big war. They don't even know necessarily what what the stuff means, but they are trying to preserve it as 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 if it were holy scripture. And uh, so that's that's the the first and second part of the book. And without giving a whole lot away, the third part does move further into the future. And, and I guess the question becomes: um, Is this is uh, is it is self destruction cyclical in in the in, in the human pursuit of knowledge basically? So yeah, it's a, another real cheery one. Yeah, you guys are killing me. These <laughs> super sad no, suggestions. That's true. That's very true. Well, I feel like those sorts of questions are so inherent in science fiction, yeah. just in general. Well, it's kind of a way, to, I think, to examine. Yeah, it's a distancing mechanism. Right. Yeah, it exactly. Lets us, it, it lets us look at at, at things. And there's some authors who who are doing uh, fantastic stuff. You talked about about climate fiction. Climate yeah. fiction. There's there's some, there's some fantastic authors out there who are who are writing sci-fi that's set pretty in our very near future. And it's funny. I mean, when I think about my own my, my grandfather or my grandparents or my parents' generation, science fiction when it looked forward in the 1950s, the 1960s, and 70s was imagining a Jetsons-esque uh, future. And not a lot of people are... I'm still waiting on my robot maid. Look, I want a, ro I want a robot maid as much as, as much as the next person. <laughs> but I think that, you know, we are, we are living with more of the... Uh, having to deal with the fallout of, of, of uh, the human endeavor, right? Right. Sure. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> well, you look like you had a better way to put it. No, it's just progress. Whatever, you guys. progress. When I was exactly. a kid, all I really wanted was one of those cool watches, like Penny on it's like a gadget has. <laughs> and now I have one. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, Apple Watch. Well, wasn't it last year, maybe the year before, that 
uh, we hit the year the Back to the Future two yeah. action mm-hmm. took place, was, and they're they're talking 2015. about twenty fifteen. Oh gosh, <laughs> time moves fast. And they're talking <laughs> about the things that we have, the things that you right. And then, but I am still not on a Hubbard board. No, and I still have and, to lace up my own shoes like yeah, a peasant. Like a. <laughs> so agreed. Agreed. Right. What am What am I? I'm a farmer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Man, thirty rock. Um, so my choice is I, I decided to go um, from the children's perspective because they usually, not always, but usually are a little bit more lighthearted. Uh, so my pick is something called Monstrous Devices by Damien Love. And it's about a 12-year-old boy named Alex who is English, uh, and he receives mysterious packages from his grandfather, who's kind of a jet-setter, overall mysterious figure. Um, and usually they are toy robots. That's what he and his grandpa do together. They, they collect toy and antique robots. And he sends, his grandfather sends him one and says, this one's very special. Take good care of it. Um, and then weird things start happening to Alex. Um, he cuts his finger on the robot. He's afraid some of his blood gets inside it. And then the robot starts acting a little strange. Uh, two other robots break into his house in the middle of the night and try to attack him. His grandfather basically says, uh, we got to bounce, and they leave for Paris and then eventually Prague. Um, it, at some point, it, it turns into a bit of a retelling of a kind of the Gollum story from um, Jewish literature, but it's fun. It, it is fast-paced. It is a fun read. Um, it's not too heavy, not too dark. It is about robots, um, so that's kind of fun. It's very English, uh, which I love. I love, Eng- I love English children's authors because they're so delightfully dark mm-hmm. um, for, for children's stuff. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. My other recommendations, um, I have not read it yet, but it just came out. The uh, Stranger Things prequel called Suspicious Minds, written by uh, our buddy Gwenda Bond, friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that. That's friend, like an official tagline now. Friend of the pod, yeah. Gwenda Bond. <laughs> hashtag. Um, hashtag. Uh, kind of mentioned that to us, that she was working on something along those lines when she was here. And uh, it's out now. It's the prequel. It's the story of Eleven's mother. Um, Stranger Things, if you haven't, if you're like one of the two people in the world who haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. Um, it's delightfully 80s in every single way. Mm-hmm. If you grew up in the 80s, so much of it will feel so real to you. I remember watching the first episode and freaking out because one of the kids' little sister in the show, who was would have been my age in the, in the show in the time period, was wearing a dress that I actually had as a toddler. <laughs> nice. And I was like, oh my gosh. Um, but it is about uh, some boys in a small town in Indiana who like to hang out together, play Dungeons and Dragons, go to the ham radio club, and suddenly they meet um, uh, a girl who is unlike anything they've ever seen or met before. Um, and she just tells them her name is Eleven, and she's clearly escaped some sort of uh, laboratory-type setting um, around the same time that one of their friends goes missing. So the whole first season is about trying to find the friend and trying to figure out where Eleven came from. Um, and then the third season actually comes out this summer. So if you want something to, to kind of binge uh, on, a, on a rainy weekend, this is a great choice. Um, get caught up for the third season. My other suggestion is one that I just finished, um, and it's a lot of fun, and that is The Umbrella Academy, also on Netflix. Um, and this is the story. It's, it's, it's actually really... I didn't know any of the backstory when I started watching it, but the the guy who wrote the graphic novels that the show is based on is Gerard Way from the band My Chemical Romance. Um, So if you grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know who My Chemical Romance are, I'm sure. Um, He was the lead singer. He, the band disbanded, and he started writing graphic novels. Um, He's also got a series, uh, Doom Patrol is his other series. 
um, Umbrella Academy was his first. Netflix has turned uh, the first book and parts of the second, I think, into the first season of Umbrella Academy. I know they took some liberties. I was reading to see what the differences were. So if you've read the novels, you can still watch the show and, and there might find new things. Um, but the premise is that one day in 1989, several children were born all on the same day. And the miraculous thing about them is that that morning, none of the women had been pregnant. Uh, an eccentric billionaire goes around um, and tries to essentially buy uh, as many children as he can. He gets seven of them. They all have special powers, and he uh, calls them the Umbrella Academy, and they are basically like a mini crime-fighting team. And they have lunchboxes, and they have cereals, and they have action figures and all of that. Then when they become teenagers, it all kind of falls apart. Uh, and the show starts after the father um, has died, and they're all brought back together to try to... Um, heal from his death and their very unorthodox upbringing and also because one of the siblings who disappeared as a teenager comes back uh, and warns them and tells them that the apocalypse is happening in eight days and they've got to try to find a way to stop it so uh, it's a lot of fun um it is very much like royal tenenbaums meets x-men it's probably the best uh explanation for it it's uh but it is fun, and it's only like 10 episodes, and it's another fun one to kind of bend your way through. And Mary J. Blige is in it, and she plays an assassin. Mm. Which should sell everyone on it. Which should sell everyone on it. It's <laughs> lots of fun. Uh, so those are my picks for sci-fi. If you're like me, and you just, you know, you're a little bit on the lighter side of things, uh, <coughs> that's those are those are some some little entry ways to get you. Dip, dip your toe in the water of sci-fi. Mm. And, well, like Jenny, I don't read a lot of sci-fi, um, and when I do, it tends to be more kind of, like, on the, the literary side of things. I don't read a lot of hard sci-fi, because it hurts my brain to think of that much science. Um, so I try to... There's in, a reason we work in libraries. I see on the shallow end of the pool when it comes to thinking about science and math, because I'm more comfortable there. Um, my big recommendation for anyone who's interested in sci-fi... Um, would be Saga by Brian K. Vaughan uh, with art by Fiona Staples. Um, it is a graphic novel series, um, and I have uh, talked at length about how wonderful it is on this podcast before, um, but it's still going, so I feel that I'm in my right to talk about it some more because it's not over yet. Um, I guarantee you when we get to graphic novels, I will talk about Umbrella Academy again, so go for it. Good. Okay. I feel extremely vindicated now then. Um, so Saga is it's a space opera, basically. Um, so it is the story of Alana and Marco, um, who are... I'm sorry, when you said space opera, I immediately thought space balls. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> Same thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. no, it, right. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, uh, Saga is the story of Alana and Marco, um, who are married, uh, and they come from two different worlds, and their people are at war. Um, so Alana comes from Landfall, which is the largest planet in the galaxy, um, and all of the inhabitants of Landfall have wings, um, and then Marco comes from Reef, which is the only moon that orbits Landfall. Um, and his people, um, while Landfallians are much more like technologically advanced, uh, people from Reef um, know magic, they speak a very obscure language, have horns. Um, and so uh, the two planets hate each other, and they've been at war for the longest time. Marco and Alana meet each other um, when Marco is the prisoner in a Landfallian prison, where Alana is his guard. Um, they meet, fall in love, uh, and actually in the, the series begins with Alana giving birth to their child, um, Hazel, which, who by all accounts should not exist um, because she's the product of this union that never was supposed to happen. Hazel has horns and wings, so there are lots of fun shenanigans trying to hide that throughout the series um, because the minute that Hazel is born, she is immediately in danger. 
because everybody wants this baby that should not exist. Um, so Alana and Marco set out and are being pursued by a number of fun, shady characters, such as Prince Robot the Fourth, who uh, is has been tasked with bringing back this child uh, before he can marry his betrothed. Um, and he presumably there's a Prince Robot the First through Third. Yes. <laughs> He is heir to the throne. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. He is, he is actually a prince. That's, it this feels like a Futurama storyline, but go on. You're not wrong. Okay. It's, it's not okay. as funny, but okay. yeah, similar. Um, Brian K. Vaughn will, will... He has a knack for making you very comfortable and like having a great time, and then he'll just like sucker punch you. Like, and, you're, and then you're just real sad all nope. of a sudden. No, nope. uh, he's, he's out right now. He's so good at that. If anybody's read Why the Last Man, um, he does it in that too. Um, he's, yeah, he's, that's his, that's like his signature. Um, and so they're also being pursued by the Will, who is a bounty hunter, who has a gigantic cat called Lying Cat, who can tell when anyone is lying. Um, so that's a fun companion to have. Um, it's, it's really, really wonderful. Uh, it's, it's ultimately a story about family and finding out who you are. Um, Hazel is growing up throughout the series, um, so it's really delightful to kind of watch her uh, come into her own as a character and as a little girl um, while being pursued by all of these uh, monsters, it sounds like. Yeah, it's not great. It's not a great scenario. Um, but as I mentioned, there's not is... an ideal childhood. No, but you get to fly around in a tree. Their spaceship is a tree, so there's that. <laughs> if you're interested in that, that comes about, you should read Saga. Uh, we have it all at the library. Uh, I, I recommend Saga to pretty much everyone. It's it's really, really wonderful. The artwork is beautiful. Fiona Staples, um, as I said, does the art for it. She actually um, did the art for the first uh, volume of the rebooted Archie comic series. Um, and it's really, really wonderful as well. Um, plug for Fiona Staples. She's great. We need to have an entire podcast of just about the Archie series. I was oh, going to say, we keep so drifting back. I can talk about Archie. I've never read Archie. I'm so confused. But when I was oh, a kid, will. Archie was like the little comics that came with like Bazooka Joe, mm-hmm. you know, the bubblegum. And it was very wholesome and like 50s nostalgic. And now there's like a whole TV show and Jughead's emo. And I don't even know what's happening. The well, new Archie comics that Fiona Staples started doing the art for is different than Riverdale. Okay. They're, so at any given time, there are roughly 500 iterations of Archie in existence so it's kind of like it's kind of like like Marvel superheroes like Captain America died once but also Captain America is still alive like there's a million different Archies well and the new and Captain 15, Marvel is 15 not different spider, spider or the new yeah. Captain Marvel is not the didn't we just have a Captain Marvel reboot in graphic novels that was a, a Muslim girl that, that's no, Ms. Marvel Ms. Marvel how what is <laughs> even happening and don't don't be confused with DC Comics Captain Marvel yeah. who is also called Shazam also, also different who, who is who's now only called who's now only called and who is getting his own movie yes yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I believe so. Comics are dumb. I'm so lost. <laughs> so, so yeah. Don't don't let Archie okay. comics bog you down. Don't yeah. don't stress it. There's a million of them. So like, if you just want to follow one, that's cool. Like, if you want to like be aware of many different Archies at one time, that's cool too. There's, like there's a, a lot of there's them. There's like a zombie Archie, right? There is Afterlife with Archie, um, which is done. It's too dark <laughs> for me. I had to peace out after like the first volume. It was too much. Um, and it is done by the the gentleman who is the show writer for Riverdale. He okay. wrote Afterlife with Archie and Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which is also a Netflix show. Wait, right. is, is Riverdale based on Archie comics? Yeah. Yes. Oh, it is. I went to a high school with a guy with a guy who's in like ten episodes of this. Is that right? What? Yeah, Hart didn't. Um, who does he play? I don't know. Oh my god! Don't ask me. I need to know that. I'm Alexis, you you're you're an Archie head, right? Yes, I would She's... say that that is correct. <laughs> who does he play on Riverdale? I'm... I don't. know. His name is 
H A R T. Pause, pause the podcast, everyone. Denny. You're the one. Oh, he plays <laughs> Benny's brother. I guess. Uh, I never like had a Benny's conversation with brother. Guy. That's exciting. So, pause for a Riverdale discussion. Uh, they brought back Chick on Riverdale, who was Betty's long lost brother in the original Archie comics, because he like was in one comic, and then they just like wrote him out. But they brought him back for the show. That's who your friend plays. I, I guess. Uh, yeah. I never talked to him. Oh. I just know. Like, your acquaintance from yeah. high school. Some guy. So, saw the whole that's really exciting. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really into it. Sorry, I uh, derailed the podcast. I really love Archie Comics. Fiona Staples does really good art, we everyone. We have an entire like, Archie <laughs> podcast. I would love that. Well, I will talk about Archie. Graphic novels is going to be December, mm-hmm. so graphic novels are the whatever. I need to like find... Uh, so I was introduced into Archie Comics because my mother had like all of like the five cents like right. comics from the 70s and I just used to read them as a child so and I just happened to be alive during the greatest Archie renaissance that has ever happened and it's so serendipitous for me <laughs> um so anyway to get back onto sci-fi um saga is my main pick it's wonderful everyone should read saga um to just kind of like delve into some of like some other things that I really enjoy um I believe that a Wrinkle in Time is a classic, and everybody should read it, and it's wonderful. The movie version with uh, Chris Pine is really good that just came out. Um, and you should, if you do read A Wrinkle in Time or reread it, so I'm assuming most people probably read A Wrinkle in Time, you should also read When You Reach Me uh, by Rebecca Stead, which is kind of like a companion book for A Wrinkle in Time. Um, it is a, a, a juvenile fiction book, like Jenny's pick. Um, and also be, probably older. Yeah, I would say like older, like... 11, 12, 13-ish, yeah. like, kind of that age. Um, it's it's a period piece. It's about a girl in, uh, I believe it's the 70s in mm-hmm. New York, um, and she uh, is kind of, like, going around the city, going to school, just living her normal life, and she starts finding these notes from somebody who is addressing her, and they say that they are from the future. Um, and so she has just read A Wrinkle in Time in school, and she's trying to kind of piece together... Um, this time travel mystery that she has suddenly found herself a part of while also just living her life and kind of encountering the typical problems that a preteen girl encounters. Um, in it's New just, York in the 70s, which is a much different time yes, place than New York. There's now. a lot of just like wandering around the streets of New York and just like doing this, like when you read it, you're just like, well, that, this is definitely a period piece because nobody's letting their 12-year-old just wander around New York after school. This is always my question in Sesame Street. Like, yeah. why are all these Muppets that are supposed to be, like, four years old playing outside with no adults watching them? Or g- just random adults from the store? It's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't I don't know that that really happens that much anymore. Um, another uh, sad pick for me, uh, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro is, is a really, really great book. Um, for fear of giving too much away, although it's kind of old, I'm sure that most people probably know what it's about by now. They did make a movie starring Andrew Garfield um, and Carrie Mulligan. And uh, Kiz and Kira Knightley in it, too? She is. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really, it's an older movie, too. Um, but uh, it's about a group of clones who live together in this picturesque boarding school in, like, the the countryside in England. Um, and it's it's really, really heartbreaking, but very wonderful. Um, and I promise it is sci-fi, even though, I, I really, it's just about clones. But I, I swear, it's it totally fits, it fits the theme. It totally fits. Um, and before uh, my time is up, I just want to throw it out there, The Fifth Element. Greatest movie oh, ever made. Yeah. It's a good one. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, uh, is that it, a great movie? What's, what's that guy? Luc Besson? Man. Yeah. He directed most recently Valerian, yes. which I would not recommend. No, I, um, I didn't even watch it. No, I went to pay 
for a theater ticket for that for some reason. I bet it was um, cool. It, 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 it has some good tropey stuff. Yeah. Like if you're into tro- and I'm not actually a tropes guy. I actually think <laughs> a lot of weaker, not that I want to talk, but a lot of weaker writers will use tropes mm. for world building to buttress their poor storytelling. Or they just get too into that. Yeah. Because, I don't know. I uh, I don't know. I guess this is relevant. I'm actually a slush reader for Apex Magazine, oh. which is a uh, nationally published uh, Hugo-winning uh, sci-fi magazine uh, that's actually based here in town. Um, I got the gig by emailing and asking if they want free labor, and, I, and they said yes. Wow. Uh, so basically, I read through unsolicited submissions and the ones that are more promising I forward to the editor. So I... I just, I don't know, I read a lot of short stories that way. That's great. Um, yeah, it's a good experience. Yeah. And we should mention, too, that this is all part of the Northside Reads project, which this year Northside staff is trying to read a different genre every month uh, and encouraging our customers to do so as well. So read outside your comfort zone is kind of our, our motto for the year, uh, which I definitely did with this book. Sci-fi, not usually my jam, but I did That's enjoy right. it. The robots were fun. You were in the same position I was last month with romance. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was also in that position with romance. I don't read a lot of romance either. Yeah, I skipped that month. Yeah. It's good stuff. Good stuff in romance. So April is mystery, right? April, we're going to be talking about mysteries, and I honestly forget the batting order after that. Okay. Folks. Do I... we have a month for fantasy? Yeah. yeah okay, it so we'll circle back around. Kind we'll be back, we'll be back to fantasy. Territory. Right. Kind of. I don't know what I'm going to read for fantasy, though, because... Oh, man. Just... That's my wheelhouse. You know, I'm ready. I ju- a friend of mine... Uh, who I grew up with is a huge uh, George R. R. Martin fan. Mm-hmm. Was even before the show came out. He's been trying to get me to read the Song of Ice and Fire. Song of Ice, yeah. Fire, Song yeah. of Ice and Fire. I read it. I'm gonna do it. So, so it's a fast read, even though it's a brick. Do you know what? It's the real fun, fast. Do you know what the fun? It's funny as I one of the things that I've found that we've just been doing this for a couple months now is how much. Uh, Making myself read outside my comfort zone kind of op- it opens me up to conversations with other people, other readers who have stuff that they're really passionate about that I might not have given it a shake before. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I think that's actually a nice a nice part of. Here's my of it. I read so I did read the first Game of Thrones, but here's my issue. My husband actually went on and read all of them, um, all of the ones that were out at the time. Well, they're the same. I read the first and he read the last. He had literally at one point had to download an app to keep all of the names and the families and the times straight. He yeah. is a historian who literally that is his job yeah. is to remember. That's a very names common like high fantasy problem, and right? And that, that, it, there's yeah. a lot going on. My issue was that the dog dies, mm-hmm. a dog dies early on, and I said, I don't know if I can finish this. Is, I did, but after that, does anyone not die in that book? Like, no, how, how did you know? How did you notice does. that the dog died it's among a very, all the other corpses? It's real prominent. They really the, nail the it home one, that the dog the is dying. One, though, in the first one, though, yeah, in the first one, it's it. There's not the blood count is not the head count. Okay. It's not, and it's a very good dog too. It's real sad. I'm still kind of scarred by it too. I read. Yeah, there, there. It's a, it's, it's a sad. sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good. It's really upsetting. Yeah. Have you guys read Dune? Pulling it back around. No, have, have not. not. Okay. Uh, I don't know. It also does the house thing. Um, yes. It's it's sort of. I think it's sort of considered or has been compared to Lord of the Rings for the uh, science fiction genre because it, it's definitely in the more science family or science, excuse me, science fantasy realm. They actually have banned computers because of hundreds of years ago robots got out of hand. So now they um, 
give people spice um, that is mined from this uh, desert planet. Uh, spoilers, it's oil. It's basically oil. Mm. Like, that's the metaphor they're making there. Spoilers uh, for Dune. Okay. Yeah, spoilers from a book right. from 1960. Uh, allegedly the highest selling uh, sci-fi book of all time. I would, I would probably rather... Uh, circumnavigate a desert planet on foot, then read Dune again, to be honest. <laughs> it's about 500 pages. And it's one of those, you gotta it's keep big. flipping to a glossary right. in the bag, right. yeah. which like physically breaks up your reading process. Yeah, yeah. I know, it, it, Yeah, it gets real exhausting. I did it over summer when I was like 15 or something. I used to have time for stuff like that. I don't have time for that anymore. I don't, I don't, it's, yeah. Isn't that being remade as a film? I think so, because they had David Lynch made his Dune, which why they picked David Lynch to make it, what? I have no idea. Well, and has, they didn't let him David Lynch it up, right. so why are you It has it? the weirdest the weirdest background as a film, because originally it wasn't supposed to be done by, I don't know if it's Jodorowsky or Hodorowsky. Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky? Yeah, he's yeah. a Spanish, I believe. No, Mexican? No. La Latinx okay, director. Right, gotcha. Uh, who directed some other stuff that's way more avant-garde. Like, right, uh, right. Actually, one of my favorite movies is The Holy Mountain that he directed, which is a really avant-garde film that was actually funded by Yoko Ono and John Lennon, if that tells you anything. Mm. Uh, so, it tells you a lot. So that, he definitely has a psychedelic body of work. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a mountain of a thing. But it's very influential. Influenced Star Wars, Desert Planet. Right. It's right there. Uh I mean, and you can even see it. It kind of has the a bit of a white savory thing because somebody from another planet who's part of this, uh, which is very common in sci-fi. That's very yeah. right. right. I mean, that's that's the elephant in the room. That like sci-fi does have a kind of white male perspective yeah. historically. It's a absolutely. lot. It's a heck of a lot. Well, better. and you also have to look at too. I think the time periods in which sci-fi emerges to yes. be times of lots of instability and insecurity. Um, you know, you take the 20s and 30s, okay, well, this 30s, depression, 50s, you know, you've got space race with the Russians and the Cold War is heating up, and there, there's a lot of fear, and naturally, when there's fear, people cling to, you know, sort of sort of fall back onto some bad, bad habits, right. and that would be listening to the, you know, predominantly, I think, to the, the white male voices, perhaps. Right. right, and we have... A lot of that now, I think, with our science fiction, it's leaning more and more dystopian. Right. Because, which I, I almost think is problematic, because we stopped, it's like we stopped imagining better futures and just kind of threw our hands up right. and gave so up. So it's like, all right, it's, yeah, all it, it's, it's sort of you're displacing responsibility and saying, well, it's the system, which it is, but I don't know, at the same time, you can, you know, not that I'm crusading or anything, uh, but, but that is something I think about a lot. And I, but I think all those, all those kind of questions are perfectly reasonable questions to, uh, to find, to, to, to come to in, in, in sci-fi. That's, that's part of what makes this kind of speculative fiction, uh, so useful. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Me, at least. Right. Yeah. It lets you ask, it lets you ask some big, some bigger questions, um, and you get to dress it up in, Cool white spandex. If it's yeah. the 1970s, you know, <laughs> like Gil Gerard and 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 Aaron Gray. Well, I think it's interesting because oh, um, you know it just occurred to me. Alex and I are of the of the Giver generation, which was a huge deal when that book came out. Oh, and I that love is, that book. That's very much sci-fi. Um, and you know, we I can't even tell you the number of times I had to read that book in school, mm -hmm. and the number of times I read it on my own. And I was extremely obsessed with Gathering Blue, which is a sequel to correct, the other. It's really, correct. really good. Yeah, there's a whole like she kind of built a whole world there mm -hmm. actually. Gathering yeah. Blue is wonderful. 
so yeah, so I think that sci-fi is kind of having its moment right now because of an entire generation that grew up with books like The Giver and mm-hmm. with the, the 80s. And that's kind of the fun thing about Stranger Things. It's got so many odes to the 80s. But if you think about it, you know, the 80s had a, a lot of very popular movies from the 1980s have a strong fascination with uh, sci-fi elements. Back yeah. the Future and that, that Star Wars yeah. thing. That Star Wars that whole thing. Star Wars yeah. thing. Flight of the Navigator, which was my favorite as a kid. Um, yeah, all that. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think maybe since sci-fi is a genre that is somewhat underrepresented, maybe um, our big sci-fi readers could give just a really quick, like, 30-second elevator pitch on why you should read sci-fi. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. No, no okay. one prepared for this. And so. Brian immediately looks at me. Yeah, immediately. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> you who's never done a podcast before. Uh, I'll go. I'll go. Um, I think we've talked about it a lot. I What I find useful about sci-fi, especially when I was younger, I think when I was younger, it introduced me to a lot of philosophical concepts. Ideas like, what is the self? You have that with clones, like in that Kasuo Ishiguro book. who's a Nobel laureate, by the way. Mm-hmm. We forgot to mention. Right. Yeah. He's known for blending genre. Um, yeah. And he, he is an American uh, author, actually. Um, so you have things like that, and you do have these discussions of race and identity politics, and also our relationship to technology, uh, our relationship to economics. You know, you have something like cyberpunk, which is a whole genre born out of uh, 80s fear of globalization and Reaganomics and computing technology in Japan that we thought was going to overtake us in the global marketplace. Um, so I, I think when I was younger, it definitely introduced me to a lot of those concepts uh, in a safe way uh, that happens. Um, I think escapism is great. I think uh, that's not a dirty word. You said 30 seconds, so I might have been going on a long time. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, We're not timing you. <laughs> okay. But I think for now what it does is, as, as I mentioned before, it kind of cuts out the BS and allows you to focus on one specific issue, one specific technology, have a thought experiment about something, um, whether that be our relationship to the environment, um, our relationship to mass media, and do it in such a distilled way that it kind of forces you to reckon itself with that. And also, I think, and because Brian and I were talking about this before the podcast, especially with our books, my book especially is very unanthropocentric, which means it doesn't really treat humans as the center of the world. And I think that's something that, depending on your opinion on that, um, can actually be very useful in sci-fi because it increases the scale of time so much that you do see how these uh, trends that we think are so essential to our civilization or so essential uh, to being are really temporary in that sense. It's like Planet of the Apes. It is definitely like Planet of the Apes, which is a good one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll count that as one of my recommendations. Planet of the Apes. Do it, people. But do the Charlton Heston version because it's so campy and fantastic. Don't do the the Tim Burton one. Written by French person Rod Serling. Right, of um, Twilight Twilight Zone. Zone. Although apparently apparently he wrote the first draft and they say that his... Was too dark. No, well, well, it was it was like it was like picture apes meet um, 
my dinner with Andre. It was just all. <laughs> it was just all. That sounds talking. great in its yeah. own way. It to be honest. No, do you want to hear a really funny thing about uh, about uh, Twilight Zone? So um, it was produced by Desi Liu, the Desi Arnaz Lucille Ball production company, and so wow. the very first original ones that they were pitching to the network were done by Desi Arnaz. Wow. Can you imagine Desi Arnaz voicing in in Rod Serling? Yes. In Rod Serling's role, role, right? He was quickly replaced for obvious reasons. Um, Because you can't hear him talk without laughing, I feel like. Because I just expect him to be yelling at at Lucy. Um, But yeah, that was his original... They're, uh, you know, they're rebooting Twilight Zone. Yeah, with Jordan Peele. George Peele producing and hosting. The trailer looks amazing. So we'll see. Would Get Out count as a sci-fi? Or do we feel like that would be more horror thriller? But it's, 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 it's first of all, genres are more useful for booksellers than for writers. True. I right. think once, <laughs> once you once you widen the bucket enough to, with 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 the term speculative fiction, yeah. I just feel like I feel like fantasy, sci-fi, and horror go in there without any without any problem. Yeah, they you know, and 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 it almost comes down to does your character have a ray gun or a wand? Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a there's a I, there's a Famous uh, story. I wish I, I remembered exactly all the details, but that in the original, uh, in Roddenberry's original, original Star Trek, um, that there were plenty of places in the script where, where they would, where, where the writers would just say, "Insert some science here." <laughs> it was just, it was just whatever the MacGuffin needed to be. That's my kind of science yeah, writing. Yeah, insert science here. <laughs> Make it up. Right. We have to get down to the planet. Mm, science that right up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and so it's, it's insert science, insert magic, insert. I don't know exactly what it would be for horror. Yeah. Curses, maybe. Whatever you need to achieve the escapism. Yeah. yeah. But isn't the horror of Get Out that it is a this science is, fictiony sort of scenario? It. I mean, to well, extent, yeah. so it involves psychology, which yeah. is a science, and that's when you actually get into the soft sciences. Which, tying it back to the drowned world, the drowned world is actually part of what is called the new wave of science fiction, which happened most notably in the 60s with authors like uh, J.G. Ballard and Michael Moorcock, who's actually best known for his Elric series mm. of fantasy novels, which we don't have any in the library, by the way. Mm. Uh, we should. But uh, I did read a science fiction book he wrote called Behold the Man, in which a man time travels back um, to meet Jesus. Uh and but he edited a lot of these stories, um, including Ballard's Ursula Le Guin, who's one of my favorite authors. I don't know if y'all have ever yeah. read her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, she's fantastic. And I, I do think it is because of the uh, zeitgeist changing in the '60s, and there being more of an emphasis on these soft sciences. Also, do think it is a somewhat of a rejection of right. uh, a lot, a lot of the kind of stultified hard sci-fi, which I love. You know, and I, you know, loved reading like Asimov and Clark as a teenager, but. Uh, it, it can be kind of simple. Because the one, one thing I think about, like with your book, Jenny, Asimov had to explain to people what a robot was. Yeah. And we've kind of gotten to the point where we can move past tropes, which I think is great, and actually use them for something. That actually gets mentioned early on in, in that book. He talks about the first time a robot is mentioned, and it's not actually what we think of as a... It was a, it was a stage play, and it was not actually what we think of as a... As a robot, as a physical metal being, it was like a person, wasn't yeah. it? Well, I, th- I think so. Whoa, yeah, I mean, it was an actor. Um, what is the what's the name of that play? I've heard of it. Yeah, I'm. I'm I think it's Italian now. or something. Yes, but it it gets mentioned at the beginning of Monstrous Devices. Right, the grandfather's no kidding. Asking the kid is asking you about robots. He's like, do you under do you know the first time? I mean, automatons go back to they're automatons right. in Greek mythology. 
you yeah. know, if you, if you broaden it enough. Yeah. And then, and then once you get into like golems, like you were sure. saying. Sure. Yeah. I actually heard that the, uh, in, in Stories of Your Life uh, by Ted Chang, who's also one of my favorite authors, and uh, he writes short fiction. The guy's written like 30 short stories, and that's his whole body of work, and has like 20 Hugos or something ridiculous. It's insane. Uh, he wrote the novelette or whatever that uh, Arrival, the movie, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. is based on. Um, and I think we do have that one in the library. But in one of his, he has a story about uh, automatons, and I actually think he mentioned that the Gollum uh, myth actually predates the sort of Jewish Does nationalist um, okay. thing. That was affixed later, which is, wow. I guess that has nothing to do with sci-fi, but that's that's a thing I read. That is fascinating. Yeah. I just thought of one more uh, quick recommendation for people who are wimps like me. Okay. Uh, the TV show Chuck, which the library has and which is also on Amazon Prime, it is the story of a... Uh, slacker guy who gets a computer put in his head and then ends up fighting crime with the CIA. Is that what that show was about? Okay. Yeah! Wow. He gets um, his his college roommate got him kicked out of college for supposedly cheating and so he's just working at a buy more, which is essentially a Best Buy, as part of the Nerd Herd slash Nerd Squad. Oh, yeah. Uh, with his best friend and he's kind of a, a classic underachiever and he gets an email from his college roommate, opens it, and it puts this computer called The Intersect in his brain and he can then suddenly like do... He suddenly has, like, all of this, all of the cumulative knowledge of, like, the CIA and the FBI, like, in his brain. That's Zachary Levi. It is Zachary Levi. Glenn Ryder from Tangled. Correct. And soon to be um, Shazam as well. Oh, yeah. Movie. Yeah. yeah. And he was in the original Thor. I think they recast him possibly. later on. But yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, it's a great show for wimps. Huh. I had no idea that show was about that. <laughs> well, if you're looking for something else, uh, light sci-fi, I really have enjoyed the two Ant-Man movies. I just, nice. I what really is his have, premise of that? I don't understand. Is it like he's a funny superhero? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's it, it's it's he's tiny. It's it's the Paul. He can shrink. It's the okay. Paul Rudd superhero movie you never knew you needed. Yeah. Oh, okay. Paul Rudd's a delight. It's 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 a lot of fun. I'm. It, it, it mixes uh, the the whole the original idea of of, of Ant Man. He was one of the founding Avengers. Mm. It, it was but Hank Pym's like, eh, yeah, he's not, he's kind of a jerk. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I guess he has a lot of. So this is following a different version of Ant Man. What's yeah. his name? I don't remember. Scott Lang. Scott Lang. Yeah, right. it's it's yeah. not Hank Pym. And right. I love that the people who wrote this movie were like, we know about the baggage that comes with Hank right. Pym. We're right, not right. going to make it, man, Hank yeah. Pym, because we know what that name right. means, because he's just a jerk. But it's just a super fun uh, movie on the H uh, that, uh, that plays with scale. That's, I should finally that's watch that. I've been meaning to. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's just... It's just Fun, silly stuff, no. and Ant Man and Wasp I thought was was a nice uh, was a nice it, it, in that it brings in uh, uh, the, the the Wasp as a character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought that was pretty cool. Nice, and you don't have to watch like every single Marvel movie. No, good, because no, no, <laughs> I'm so far behind at this point. I don't even know that it's possible. To there are there are a lot. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It's a uh, kind of weird. Kind of plays back to the serials of the 30s like yes. Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers right. which right. influenced George Lucas and we're back <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. spun it back around again we've made a circle <laughs> great 
Well, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, stay tuned. Next month, we're going to hit mysteries, which is my favorite genre, and I've got, I'm so excited. Uh, but this has actually been a really great month for me, and I feel like I've learned a lot about sci-fi, and uh, I've enjoyed it. So thanks, guys. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks.